0: Chapter 6 Shooting Day 1. What we need to do is pick a tempo, stick to it.
1: John, Nina, and I, the Westport Massachusetts crew, drove up to Flat Black Coffee for our first shooting day, September 28, 2013. It was crisp and dry, and the air smelled nice. The sort of fall air that's comforting and memorable for such a short time of the year. It was still warm enough for shorts if you're chubby like me, but chilly enough to make a sweatshirt cozy. I decided then that I was going to spend the rest of the shoot in shorts and a sweatshirt for maximum comfort, even in my acting scenes. We weren't due to shoot until 10 a.m., but we left extra early to swing by work and pick up some of the equipment Kyle and I had stored in our offices, tripods, lighting stands, etc. Even with that extra trip, we arrived at the location before 10 a.m. I was overly impressed by a parking meter that you could feed with your credit card. Finally, some overdue convenience. We stood outside a locked flat black coffee, peering through the windows, seeing the location for the first time. Our $500 were well spent. The location was small and manageable, but with wonderful colors that signified Boston Coffee Shop in an instant. It looked like a movie set, and would do perfectly. We idled around outside the location, wondering if we should grab a coffee elsewhere, which would be kind of dumb considering we were about to be treated to as much coffee as we order, when we heard someone shout at us, the voice ricocheting off the empty Saturday morning financial district. Hey! My heart jumped into my throat a little as I immediately worried about our safety and our expensive camera equipment. But when I followed the voice, I saw... Mark. Not as much John Ryan. I had worked with that guy many times before. Now this was the character out of our script. A cloud of cigarette smoke followed him, aviator sunglasses, an acid-washed denim jacket, an army surplus bag draped around him, and a little cap. He carried one small luggage bag. I hadn't seen him in almost four years. We embraced, as was customary, and tried to entertain one another as we went for a stroll around the financial district, waiting for the world to wake up. His flight had just gotten in, so he was jet-lagged and had gotten very little sleep. When we circled back to the location, a few key people filed in. First, trusty old Kyle, with a camera bag and homemade stabilization rig, made of black steel piping and a camera plate, with counterbalanced weights in the back. Next, we saw Rose Norris, the hysterical actress who played June in Sexually Frank. She was doing a walk-on as an annoying customer. Lisa Dempsey, star of Vibes, drove in from New York to play an old high school classmate of Mark's. Among Lisa, Rose, and John, we now had a little actor's corner that talked acting and local projects, which always happens. Jeff showed up, and to my shock, Bonica Ayala, the still-photographer friend he mentioned, was with him. Incentivized only by the fun she expected to have, Bonica had flown from Austin and was staying with Jeff for the week, and had every intention of being at every shoot. She brought her 5D Mark III, the same camera we were shooting the movie on, and quietly and subtly began clicking away, like a photo-taking ninja. Aaron St. Laurent and fiancé Mike Morris also wandered in, as they lived in the general area. Unlike most people, they don't have a job on the movie, they're really just friends who lend moral support. Aaron rolled the making-of camera for a little bit, drank some free coffee, and then left when he got bored. I actually love that. It's nice to be in the presence of friends when under this kind of stress. I saw the footage later and got to hear Aaron mock me for being nervous. We also had Michael Labreck-Yessen, longtime friend and co-worker, playing the role of Mark's overbearing boss. I described the character to Mike in an email as not technically wrong about the issues he takes with Mark, but still a total jerk about it. He's young to be in the position he's in, but takes it seriously. Mike's wife read that description. Frankie wants you to play yourself in the movie. Hannah Carpenter showed up later in the day. She was not slated to shoot her acting scenes for another three days, but she was staying at her boyfriend's house in the area and came by to show us some support. She was pretty hungover. And finally, Mary Timmons, another co-worker, showed up to play a version of herself, the gruff mid-sixties manager of the coffee shop who's close with Mark but can't keep him employed. Mary showed up an hour or two into shooting, as we weren't shooting her stuff until later on, but she arrived with some sort of cold and seemed to be in an awful mood. That was in my periphery as I tried to concentrate on everything we were doing. As people ordered their drinks, I tried to find an appropriate area to squirrel away backpacks and accessories that we wouldn't want in the shot. This is a good first measure when you step onto a location. Identify a safe place to store and hide your stuff, or else everyone's belongings will be scattered across the location, popping accidentally into your shots. John Ryan threw on his costume, and asked the store manager if she could teach him how to use the espresso machine and make a few drinks. Like Robert De Niro before him, Jr. was tapping into his method. Comically enough, when the scene actually called for him to make a drink, using the machine and making the drink for real took way too long, as the actor opposite him waited for up to a minute to resume dialogue. So all drink preparation was ultimately faked and cheated anyway. Kyle and I hadn't shot together in two years. Vibes was shot in the fall of 2011. But to my pleasant surprise, some muscle memory kicked in for the first hour. I'm both the director and producer, so when I'm shooting, I'm conscious of balancing what I want with what I can have within the time allotted. Kyle's also excellent at being conscious of resources and time. This is an unusual trait among cinematographers, who will normally overlook resources and time in their pursuit of perfection. How Kyle and I tend to approach a scene. Number one, block the action out with the actors first before designing any camera setups. Make an extra effort at this stage to design motion into the scene. There's nothing more boring than two people stuck in the same spot. Even if it isn't written, give them some reason to move. For instance, if you're shooting dialogue between two people talking in an office, give them tasks that require them to move throughout the space. Number two, Kyle comes up with camera setups while watching, communicates them to me, and I approve if it makes sense, and add an adjustment if it doesn't. Number three, we shoot the entire scene, as much as is reasonable, from a wide shot. Even if this is a rehearsal for the actors, we shoot it. If we got booted from the location or something terrible happened, we would at least have that wide shot, which is kind of a movie. Number four, we move in to shoot coverage of the next most important shots, normally that's some kind of a close-up single, a shot of only one person, I like to shoot singles because in the edit, if the actors flub or aren't consistent with their motion from shot to shot, I can edit it more cohesively. Often I can build my own rhythm in the edit rather than count on the actors to get that rhythm on the day. This can still be done with dirty singles or over-the-shoulder shots, OTS shots, in which the person who isn't being focused on is in the frame, but it's a bit trickier. In a standard dialogue scene, if we have time, we do both, a medium single and a closer OTS. And number five move to the next most important shot, and repeat until it's done. It's important that you get through as many setups as possible, because that increases your options in the edit. This is more important than spending time trying to get any one setup to be perfect. In the case of the coffee place, and really most locations, the shooting day is our first opportunity to do any kind of planning in the space. Even if we got a chance to see the location in advance, the actors were almost definitely not available, or the cinematographer wasn't there, or even if he or she was, it wasn't appropriate to start planning our movie during opening hours at a restaurant, or wherever. Or in the case of many locations, we don't even get approval to shoot until days or hours before we start shooting. The preparation Kyle and I did do involved printing a binder of camera setups from films and styles that inspired us, particularly as it regarded shooting dialogue, of which there was plenty in our movie. We weren't keen to just do shot-reverse-shot throughout the movie, so Kyle especially took that homework seriously, posting and describing dozens of setups, especially for movies by Fincher and Soderbergh, and other digital filmmaking innovators. Being able to refer to the printed camera setups was very helpful in quickly communicating about what we could do, but it's not to say we shot listed, storyboarded, or committed to do anything specific until we rolled the actual shot. There are also techniques for saving time while in a setup. For instance... I've been on a lot of student or inexperienced sets that completely reset the take when an actor flubs a line or misses a mark. This wastes more time than you can imagine. The actor and director feel the need to discuss it, when really they just need to do it again without the flub. The camera stops, and if you're not on a tripod, you lose the setup you had before and have to reapproximate it, and you unnecessarily reshoot action and dialogue of what you already have perfectly acceptable footage. I simply interrupt the scene with, still rolling, take it back from, and I say a line that I want them to start it from. Still rolling clearly communicates to Kyle that I don't want to cut. If I don't say this, he might infer that I want to stop the take and forgot to say cut. It also communicates to the actors that I want to keep the energy alive, and to anyone off camera to stay silent, because the take hasn't stopped. Then you want to make sure you take the scene from enough lines back that in your edit, you have some breathing room to lead into the flubbed line. I'll also use this technique to make small directing changes, ones I don't feel need much discussion. For instance, if it occurs to me while I'm watching the scene, which I always do behind Kyle, looking at the camera LCD, editing in my head, that a character needed to express more anger, I'll say, still rolling, then I say a line I want them to start it from, and I'll angrily shout the direction, and the tone I'm looking for. It's not a line reading, it's quickly inserting the energy that might be lacking. I also give John Hunt and Kyle permission to call cut to fix blatant, show-stopping audio or camera problems. If the rest of the take would be unusable, why should we continue? Now, these quick fixes don't always work. Sometimes things are so desperately off the mark that a quiet and careful discussion needs to take place. But that's rare. Often, you've discussed a lot of these moments in pre-production, or at least before you started shooting the scene. More often than not, if you cast the right person, they get it. Most commonly, you're just trying to shoot a lot of dialogue in one take and the actor wasn't able to memorize all the dialogue thoroughly, probably because they have a life. If you have an extra hand, assigning someone the job of script supervisor can be very valuable. One is so the actor can call out, line, the script supervisor calls it out, and they resume without wasting time. The more important reason is to correct small errors in the performance of the dialogue. Remember back when I was detailing the amount of tweaking we did on the script? Well, that's because good storytelling is about communicating clearly with the audience without unnecessarily repeating information or being so blatant that they can't make their own discoveries. In other words, you aim to only write exactly the amount you need to write. So if an actor accidentally swaps a word or delivers a line in the wrong order, it can actually change the meaning of the scene. If you go home and start editing and discover that situation, your only recourse could be to cut the line, which may cause more problems. A little bit of dialogue deviation is totally acceptable, as actors make it their own and adopt natural deliveries, but if the script supervisor is able to read along and catch those kinds of errors, it can save a tremendous headache. Sometimes the problems are even larger. Maybe your actors completely skipped a section of dialogue, and you didn't notice because you were concentrated on their rhythm, lack of flubs, and integrity of the camera setup. Maybe they forgot that section of dialogue in some of the setups, but not in all. Sometimes it's easier if the errors are at least consistent. A script supervisor can catch all that. Jeff acted as our script supervisor on having fun up there. The screenwriter is not critical on set, but a huge opportunity would have been lost if Jeff hadn't been there. As a producer, Jeff had been quality control on the authenticity of our film and could continue that work on the production, as well as catch script details I may otherwise miss. Combine that with script supervisor responsibilities, and you catch a lot of problems before they become major. During pre-production, Jeff waffled about being on the entire production, expecting that his work schedule would only allow him a day or two, or maybe just the weekends. You have to do what you have to do, but I'm only going to say this once, I said. You will absolutely regret it if you don't join us for the shooting. He took that to heart, found the time off, and thanked me multiple times before and after the production. My regret statement referred to two things. One was more obvious. I meant that he'll regret not living the experience of watching something he birthed get made into a pretty great indie feature, in combination with the fun and productivity and learning that will take place. But two, I knew he and I both needed his daily buy-in. I think we all have a tendency to believe that if we were involved with something, maybe we could have impacted it for the better. I didn't want to produce a film that Jeff didn't fully approve of, and that he regretted not being able to influence more.
0: And aside from Jeff Torelli. I can't stress enough how correct Frankie is here. It would have been a giant missed opportunity for me had I not found a way to get the vacation time.
1: His presence helped prevent my being overtaken with insecurity. And really, that's true of the cast and crew ecosystem. The actor's insecurity is mitigated if I'm not complaining or don't ask for a correction. Mine is mitigated by their commitment to doing a good job. The writer's is mitigated by the fact that it's in the director's capable hands, and so on. We're constantly doubting ourselves and reaffirming one another silently each day. Another addition to our workflow were wireless headphones. John had bought two pairs, one for me to monitor the performances, and one for him to monitor for errors. Aside from the fact that I constantly put them down and then couldn't find them, and that I could never hear people talking to me when I had them on, they were very handy for me, because often I'm forced to be too far away from the actors to listen to them carefully they might make a very subtle or quiet delivery that I missed but would have loved or wanted to adjust. Having two people monitoring audio also forces some discussion when there's an error and deciding whether or not a retake is necessary. Overall, if I have the headphones and the camera LCD, I'm watching as close a version to the final film as we can get live. A pretty serious limitation to shooting on the Magic Lantern RAW format is that the camera's onboard mic does not record any audio. Shooting non-sync, in which your audio source is external from your video source and you sync it later, was not new for us. Sexually Frank and Vibes were both shot non-sync, and I actually preferred being able to keep the audio and video equipment disconnected for mobility purposes. That and it allowed us more tracks, which meant more labs, mics, and options. But on Sexually Frank and Vibes, when we shot on the 7D, we could at least play a shot back and review it to determine if we got what we needed, and it would contain the audio from the onboard mic. So it wouldn't play back the audio we were going to use, but it was good enough to give a yay or nay. More than that, on the Magic Lantern Raw, we couldn't even play back the video clips in the camera. If we wanted to preview a shot, we had to slowly transfer it onto a laptop, then sync it with external audio. That was, of course, impractical, so we just had to trust ourselves more. Additionally, on Frank and Vibes, we didn't clap scenes in, using a slate or a clapper before each take to provide a definitive sync point for the audio and video. Instead, I would just sync the audio from the onboard mic with the external audio, most often on the ah in action. Now we had no choice. We had to clap each take in. We might as well be shooting on film. For going on 90 years of filmmaking, productions have used that little clapboard to not only clap the scene in, but to visually mark which camera setup and which take you're using. Then they'd call it out so that if the audio and visuals ever became estranged, they could be matched up easily. But dedicating someone's time to documenting, marking, and calling each take felt like a good way to add hours to each day, and realistically, who could I assign that task to? We were out of people for more tasks. John suggested we use an Android app in his tablet, which would show a countdown leader and then a little beep, and it would keep track of which take you were on. But we quickly learned that you couldn't adjust how long the countdown was, and the whole thing was just as cumbersome as doing it the old-fashioned way. So we went even more low-tech. We asked the actors to clap in front of the frame before I said action. What most sets sound like. Assistant director. Roll cameras. A camera operator. Roll camera A. B camera operator. Roll camera B. Assistant director. Roll sound. Sound guy or gal. Speed. Assistant director. Slate in. Guy or gal doing the slate. Coffee shop take one. Clap. Director or assistant director. Action. What we sound like. Frankie. Okay, let's shoot it. Kyle. I'm rolling. John. Rolling an actor claps in front of the screen. Frankie. Action. And aside from Kyle Gage.
0: A lot of film crew people are perfectionists and prima donnas. That's right, I said it. The cinematographer usually sits around thinking they're the most important person on set because they're actually capturing what the audience will see. The sound guy usually thinks they're the most important because without good audio, even the most beautifully composed shot doesn't matter. The lighting guy constantly thinks that the actors' faces aren't lit correctly, they don't have eyelights, and no matter what framing is achieved, the audience won't see things correctly. I won't even mention how ridiculous the directors can be. That's a firmly established stereotype. My point is that every film crew member should have one primary consideration in their mind. Don't be the one person holding up the production, unless it's really, really worth it. And by worth it, I mean only hold up production if what you're changing affects what ends up on screen. Always try not to be the production bottleneck let other people do that. The actors always have to leave early or something, the location always wants to kick you out, so don't play around. If all the actors are ready, John feels good about the audio levels, Frankie feels good about the frame and the performance notes, and I'm the only one sitting around because I want to change all of the lights, then I'm suddenly the problem. That's not to say you should never, ever stop the director from saying action, just be able to explain why you're holding things up and how it'll relate to the finished product. Or wait until someone else has a good reason to hold production and do whatever you need to do at the same time, especially if you're trying to shoot a whole movie in nine days. For
1: half of the first day on Having Fun Up There, we reluctantly asked the actors to try to call the shot, i.e. coffee shop, shot one, take two, but I knew there was no way they could mentally catalog what shot we were on while trying to remember lines. Predictably, it collapsed quickly, and all we asked was that they clap visibly. The saving grace here was that John and Kyle were disciplined at rolling when the other was rolling, and not when the other was not. Therefore, I could reasonably assume that each camera take had a corresponding audio take that was written with the same timecode. When syncing in post production, I would quickly discover that this was not the case as I synced the clap, then played the clip and watched the audio and video completely mismatch. If this were the case, I would simply try to pair the video clip with the next audio clip, and that worked just about 100% of the time. I mentioned earlier that the Magic Lantern Raw 1080p video occupied 1 gig of space for every 10 seconds in our tests. Now we were feeling that pain. Unlike the Blackmagic line of cameras, there was no way to record to a portable or mounted hard drive. The 5D only took compact flashcards or SD cards. So between Kyle, John, and myself, we purchased six 32GB 1000X CF cards. They're about $100 each. A slower speed card wouldn't be able to write fast enough to the cards while we shot, so we had to spring for these fancy ones. Having six allowed us enough time to dump the cards to a laptop, with a 1TB drive connected, and continue shooting. We had an incident on Sexually Frank in which somehow, some way, a card never got transferred, and we had to reshoot a good deal of footage as a result. We vowed to not make that mistake again, so Kyle and I developed a pocket system. If a card is in Kyle's pocket, they're empty and ready to be shot on, and if they're in mine, they need to be transferred. I used my MacBook Air with USB 3.0 ports and a USB 3.0 card reader to transfer. If we had used USB 2.0 instead of USB 3.0, the transfers would have been too slow to recover the cards, and the process would interrupt shooting. I only trusted myself with the transferring of cards, because a small error could cost us a serious amount of time we don't have, and, if we're paying for the locations or anything else, money. At worst, you discover you don't have footage that you definitely shot, and John Ryan is back in California. So Kyle and I would stop to swap cards between camera setups or when an actor was in a costume change, some kind of natural pause. Sometimes if I trusted the situation enough, I would begin a take and then quietly step away to begin a transfer. The frequency with which this was occurring was baffling. At the data rate I described, a 32-gig card would only hold 320 seconds of footage, which is about five minutes and change. So every few minutes, Kyle would hand me a card, sometimes only after one or two takes. I had to juggle six of them, carefully sorting them by transferred and not transferred, frequently panicking that I had messed it up, necessitating a few minutes to verify that I hadn't. Fortunately, there was no Sexually Frank-style event on this movie. All footage got home safe and sound. Still, I was using the laptop to transfer the data onto a small 1 terabyte hard drive and often feared that the hard drive was going to fail or die mid-shoot or something. Sure, I could have copied the data to a second drive, but then my mental bandwidth would be occupied with reconciling the two drives and it would take double the time to complete the transfers. Quite frankly, I miss tapes. These were the mechanical hurdles. Creatively, the coffee shop went very well. Mike labreck delivered with his well-humored depiction of himself, John Ryan already was Mark, and Rose Norris absolutely nailed the comedy in her tiny part. Lisa Dempsey and John Ryan then had to suffer through a scene that was over-expository and logically unsound throughout most of the scriptwriting phase. Jeff and I thought we had remedied it, as did some of our readers, but as Lisa and John flubbed through the endless dialogue, Jeff and I became self-conscious of all the blah blah blah. Lisa and John were absolutely fine, they just had a challenging scene. To increase the anxiety, about halfway through shooting, the sickly Mary Timmons came over to me to let me know that she's fading fast and we need to shoot her scene soon. There was still a whole bit we had to shoot against John Ryan's side, but I determined that we had enough Lisa to make the scene work. I wrapped her and she headed back to New York. Mary was a teacher for several decades and was a good speaker, but had never acted, so her scene required a lot of manual intervention on my part. We ultimately got it. We had to wrestle with the rumbling ice machine that no one at the store knew how to turn off, so Mary's audio was also a bit flawed, but some ambience mixed in later solved that. I doubt there will ever be a movie I make that doesn't have a roaring refrigerator of some kind, ruining my art. As we wrapped on the final shots at Flat Black Coffee, everyone was starving and exhausted, having only drank coffee, hot chocolates, and flat whites. Nina also packed us a nice tote of cookies, crackers, nuts, small waters, and Rice Krispie treats, but those were mostly gone or inadequate. We were halfway done with the first day and already this spent. It's like being out of breath on the first mile of a marathon. It's panic-inducing. Still, we figured the next scene would be a breeze. The location was Jeff's apartment, and we were shooting the Noah and Mark big monologue scene. So it was just me and JR at a very controlled location. Nina, John Hunt, JR, Kyle, and I piled into my Ford Taurus and drove from State Street to Somerville, which was a surprisingly tough drive. It was about 4 p.m., and there was some massive parade and event in Davis Square, forcing every GPS route to be invalid as we kept bumping into closed roads. The packed back seat held a measured Nina, a comatose John Ryan, and a hyperactive Kyle. Kyle was relentless in making noise, cracking bad jokes, and directing my driving or offering new routes. Meanwhile, John Hunt packed the front seat, also on the brink of sleep, and continuously insisted on opening the window to cool himself when the rest of us were chilly. He and I battled for control over the passenger window. We were officially the Griswolds. Once we were parked and settled, we ordered a healthy amount of pizza to knock out the hunger pains. Delicious, doughy, cheesy pizza. And maybe something vegan for Nina. Jeff's girlfriend Maya recently had a leg injury, so I couldn't help but feel like we were intruding on her space, gorging on pizza like Thorin's company. Everyone relaxed into the eating and merriment so much that I became afraid we wouldn't be able to resume the work ahead of us, straightforward though it may be. Bonica and I got to know each other better during that dinner. She struck me as a very honest and outgoing person, but someone quiet and kind, which is a cool extrovert-introvert mix. She seems psyched to just be around productivity and creativity, which I love. Some appreciation for how cool all this playtime is. Kyle, Jeff, JR, and I lazily struggled with the cramped room we were going to shoot Noah's scene in. There was a bunch of stuff in the room and not a lot of places to put the camera. Kyle's rig was failing slightly, as the handlebars were falling out of the center, causing him to exert more forearm strength and keeping the whole thing steady. Once we were ready to begin, Jeff and John Hunt played their roles from outside the room. Apart from Kyle, Jeff, JR, and myself, everyone seemed to be pizza crashing, nodding off and bored whenever I peeked outside the room. Then, during my close-up, John Ryan, still jet-lagged and completely without energy, fell asleep before my very eyes, while I was delivering dialogue to his character. As I previously established, I don't want to stop the take and waste time, so I did my very best to look where his eyes would be if they were open and continued the dialogue. At the end of the take, he woke up and apologized profusely, but when I then delivered my monologue, which again is one of the biggest moments in the film, JR's eyes rolled back into his head and he looked like he was being euthanized. I couldn't help but worry about the boringness of the scene, but I've since received a lot of genuine compliments about my performance. Jeff came up to me minutes after and told me I nailed it. But mid-monologue, I felt like I was blabbing at a bunch of people who wished I would shut up. Maybe that helped. And aside from Jeff Torelli.
0: I honestly didn't know if Frankie could pull off the character, partly because I had something very different in my head when I wrote it. But he came unbelievably prepared, and I was really happy to see that I was wrong.
1: We still weren't done with day one. As we completed the Noah scene, Maria Natapov arrived and prepared for her night shoot for a few scenes with JR. The first was a dialogue scene at a bus stop so we packed our gear and walked to the street corner. In the scene, Carla's sipping on a nip while asking Mark if he's discouraged by how infrequently his band plays. The street had a really nice, trashy Somerville light, and after a take or two of adjustment, Maria was playing Carla beautifully. We failed to buy a nip, but John Ryan had one from the plane and offered it to the good of the film. This was one of two scenes in the movie that I wrote myself, so it was easy for me. I snuck in another Rocky reference, having written that Mark is bouncing a small ball, as Rocky anxiously bounces a small black ball throughout most of the films. Kyle had a very nervous energy, even by his standards. He was short and snappy with me, resentful and angry at... something. He started to say that, we can't just do this, and finally turned to me and said, if anything happens, you're taking full responsibility. I asked him what his problem was, and finally he just told me. She was drinking openly in public. Again, I don't drink, so I don't think about this kind of thing. I told him, sure, I'll, I'll take responsibility, and we completed the scene in less than 20 minutes. Visually, it's one of my favorites in the movie. The wireless headphones were a godsend here, as I could never have heard the dialogue with all the street noise. Our mics recorded it all nice and clean. Remember how I said we struggled to find a good liquor store location? Well, we never actually secured one. We only needed a shot or two of Mark and Carla browsing a liquor store and picking out a jug of Carlo Rossi. I suppose, technically, we didn't need the shot at all. We could just show them with the jug later and not explain the purchasing of it, but we thought it added a nice flavor. It's something they stopped and did when they feared that Carla might be pregnant. There was a liquor store on that block. It was nighttime when the scene was meant to take place, and we had the crew and cast all available. I thought it was worth asking. Nina, a polite, unassuming female, went in to appeal to the owner, but the guy didn't speak a word of English and wasn't even able to say no, let alone yes. Bonica suggested that maybe we could shoot through the window as they browsed the store. I thought it was a great idea. Kyle still seemed anxious and ready to abort the endeavor at any moment, but he was a good sport and collected a few acceptable shots. After our rogue liquor store scene, we wrapped on a successful day one. We packed up and headed back to the car, as the Boston people left for their respective subway station, and John, Nina, Kyle, and I returned to the car. Kyle would be spending the night with us, as the next day was the children's birthday party scene in New Bedford. As we walked back with Jeff, I remember looking ahead at JR and Maria, who were in full costume. To my eye, they looked like characters that had jumped out of Jeff's script. I was happy for him, and for me. Back at the house, Jr. took up residence in my furnished basement, sleeping in a recliner, surrounded by Xbox merchandise and a ton of clothes scattered around the room, most of which was intended as costume for the character. It was up to the actors, with our help, to keep track of what costume they were wearing and what scenes. So if, for instance, we shoot a scene on Monday and then another on Tuesday, and both scenes are meant to take place on the same day in the film, the actor has to keep their clothing continuity in check. The clothing explosion made me worry that JR was going to struggle with this. Late that night, I saw that Bonica had already posted the entire day's production stills on her website. They looked incredible. And moreover, I was impressed that she was still awake sorting through photos. Not to be outdone, I went to bed late, syncing video with audio.